0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Sundays. This day is a special day to us, God, different than the other six, for we can come and be together and we can worship. But God, you didn't necessarily make us for Sundays. You made us for every day. and So God, help what happens on a Sunday to prepare us for a Monday through Saturday. Help help us to be, God, what we say we are. Help us to be, God, what, what we're supposed to be. Help us to be, God, what we want to be. And then, Father, we ask that You would give us some mature, reasonable thinking as we think about that are we what we ought to be are we what we say we are we ask for that god in jesus name we pray amen if you would turn in your bible to first peter chapter 2 first peter chapter 2 if you didn't bring a bible today that's okay you can use the pew bible there Uh, The Black Bibles, page 1114, 1114, 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to look at just two verses, verses 11 and 12 in 1 Peter 2. It's a good passage. It's kind of a sweet passage. It's an encouraging passage, and I hope that you will see it as that. I hope that you leave here today uh, getting what I just prayed about. I just prayed that we today would um, understand what we're supposed to be We'd have clarity of thought on whether we are. um, That we would be people who live like we know God. And 1 Peter 2 speaks about that. That's what today's passage is about. Have you ever had a situation where you, you loved somebody and you just wanted them to do well? You really cared about somebody, you wanted them to do well. That's a neat feeling. It's a neat feeling when you're invested in something, or, or, or even better, someone, and you want that to go well. Uh, March Madness is here, and basketball games have been going, and we've already seen several. and We have uh, eight more games today, and we have the final game tonight with the University of Louisville uh, tonight, and we're all looking forward to more basketball today. And there was a game that happened uh, in the first round where Georgia State, which many of you paid close attention to because Kevin Ware from Louisville plays for that team now, where the coach had a broken foot and was sitting on a stool. You might have seen this. And his son plays on the team. Their last name's Hunter. I think his coach is Ron Hunter, and the son is Ron Hunter Jr., so they call him R.J., And his son had a terrible game, only two points, but finished with the final 12 points of the team's 13. And actually, as a 14 seed, he hit a three-pointer at the buzzer to knock off a three seed and for his team to win. Well, his dad was sitting on a roller stool on the sideline the whole game, and when his son hit this game-winning shot, he thrust himself up in the air, and the stool went sliding out from underneath him, and he fell out on, on the side of the court there, but they won. And I don't know if you got to see the post-game interview. They lost yesterday, so they're now out of the tournament. Their Cinderella run is over. Um, But I don't know if you got to see his post-game interview or his press conference yesterday. Both times, Dad was crying like crazy. And he was proud. They lost. Their season's over. They didn't even make it to the Sweet 16, but he was proud. And, And it just struck me because he kept saying, this is his son. And he kept saying, man, I love this kid. I love this kid. He was crying. I love this kid. I love this kid. I'm so proud of this boy. I'm so and that was his son. And it was really, really a neat feeling. And it reminded me of of just relationships that you have in life where where that person means so much to you, you just want them to do well. You want them to do right. You don't you don't want them to necessarily win the national championship. It wasn't even a realistic goal for Coach Hunter to say, we're going to win the national championship. They didn't go in saying we're not, but you know what I mean. We're going in to do our best. We're going in to do our best. We're going in to play as hard as we can. We're going in to remember what we've practiced. We're going in to do what we can. And it's neat that the coach is saying, I'm proud of us. I'm proud of him. I love them. special. A couple weeks ago, J.J. had to compete in something for school, and as a first grader, they don't take competition all that seriously. But I remember leading up to that, just going, all right now, son, you, you've practiced, you know it. Just go do your best, man. I'm, I'm proud of you. Good job. And whether he'd have won or lost, doesn't matter. If he'd have done what he had practiced and prepared for, I was going to say, man, great job. I read a book one time that says, When you're wanting to get your kid involved in something, whether it's studying or whether it's sports or whatever it is, if you want them to be into superheroes, one of the best ways to talk to them is to say, I love to watch you do that. They might have played a terrible game. You say, man, I love watching you play. I just love sitting there watching you play, man. It's awesome. There's something about... When the loving relationships there, friendship, parenting, you know, whatever, however the relationship's there, when you you are telling them, I just want you to do well. If you're a parent, that makes good sense to you. If you have any other strong relationships, I hope it does. In the Bible today, we find Peter saying this to the Christians. He's already said a lot to them. They're, they're facing persecution. Christians living in the world at this time are, are, are receiving a lot of opposition from countries, from nationals, from governments, that, that them rejecting. Uh, what is the way of the government or them rejecting what is the way of the religious system that's already in place and saying they are going to follow Christ and the Word of God uh, faces a lot of opposition at times and at places in the world. And, 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 and Peter has been telling them to, to live their lives for God, to rest in the truth of God, to keep their eyes on Jesus, to turn away from their sins and be believing in Christ. And then we get to our passage today and it's like you, you sense... That Peter the Apostle just loves these people and wants them to just keep following. Keep moving forward. Hang in there. Keep your eyes on the prize. Read with me, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved. See, that's what I'm saying. He, he, he wants to say to them, Beloved. Now, this is not the first, this is not the intro to the book. At the intro to the book, he said some nice things to them. But this is in the middle. He says, Beloved. He's reminding them, I love you. He's reminding them, our relationship is a good one. He's reminding them that you matter to me. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just two verses. Sweet passage. Let's walk through it. Beloved. Peter calls them beloved because they're dear to Him. They matter to Him. I hope and I pray that you have some relationships in life somewhere. Now, some of you may have a lot, some of you may have a few, but I hope that you do have some relationships where somebody is beloved to you. And you may not use the language that they used 2,000 years ago. You might not refer to somebody as, as beloved. But I hope you have some relationships to where you say meaningful things to them because of your loving relationship. I hope you have some family members that you can look in the eye and say something meaningful to. I hope you have some neighbors or some coworkers. Do you have any relationships where love is strengthening? I know it's going to sound a little bit weak, but I want to tell y'all something. When I moved here to Louisville in 2003, I was in seminary and I was single and I got a job waiting tables and I I worked at this restaurant waiting tables for off and on 3 years and I loved I loved doing it. And 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 When I got there, there was one other person that worked there that was a Christian, and he quit, and I was the only person that worked there that was a Christian. And every day when I would get out of my car and I was walking into the restaurant, I would pray the end of Psalm 19, verse 14. God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to You, O Lord. That's what I would pray going into there. And I prayed many times for those people that they would be Christians. Some had come to church with me. Many had had conversations with me about Jesus. And I worked my, my, my rear off there and, and liked working there. At times had received like employee of the month or whatever waiting tables. And, and I enjoyed it. And I, and I made some good friendships there. Spent many times playing basketball. Many late nights playing ping pong. Many times hanging out with them. Going to company parties. Going to their homes. I made some real friendships. But I ended up getting married, and, and waiting tables is hard, working late at night if you're, if you're married. So I ended up quitting. And I remember my last night there. And I was only there three years. I didn't retire, I just quit. And I remember leaving. And I remember when I had to say, I'll see y'all later, and knowing that it was the last time. I had prayed for those people, loved those people. And I remember walking out to my car, I know this is going to sound kind of weak, but I remember walking out to my car and I I kind of started crying as I was walking to my car. Because God had made those people mean something to me. They mattered to me. And I know there's not a lot of other people in the world talking to them about Jesus, if any. But God had so put me there in that restaurant for a few years and they mattered to me. They mattered to me. They had become beloved to me. Not not as much as my wife and my kids or or you all that I've been with for years. They didn't matter to me. I loved those people and I wanted them to know God. And I want you to hear from 1 Peter that Peter is writing a letter to people who are spread out all over uh, the dispersion, as it mentions in verse 1. People from all different cities. they had become dear to him. I want to ask you, if you live your life in such a way that that relationships are being made stronger. That you start to love people, and people start to love you, and you start to know that somebody loves you. And and people start to know that, that you love them. So that there are times when you can have real conversations and say, hey, go do your best. Hey, go get the job. Hey, do the right thing. Hey, we're counting on you. And in many ways this is what Peter's doing here. Right after he says beloved, he says I urge you. Listen, we need to know this in life. You're not going to urge anybody to do anything if you haven't first loved them. If you can't call them beloved, you're not urging anybody to go anywhere and do anything. If somebody off the street walks out here today and says, "Hey man, I want to urge you to go over here and help this this person." You're not listening. When somebody you love says, man, can I urge you to to make these changes? Can I urge you to make this decision? When somebody loves you, urges you, you listen. That's what's so beautiful about parenting. Really, that's what's so beautiful about motherhood. So many people respect and obey their moms because their moms have loved them in such a deep way. When mama says it's time for you to do something, you do it. Why? Because you know she loves you. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He addresses them as sojourners and exiles. We've already talked about that. According to the Bible, people who have become to be believers in Jesus do not see earth as home. We are out of place here. We are aliens and exiles. Heaven is our home. This is not our citizenship is not here. I mean, it is. I'm American and I'm a Faradillion, but, but heaven is even more so than that. My my love for heaven is stronger than any love here. My desire for heaven is stronger than any desire here. And so he he, he brings that up as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, if you're going to urge somebody to to go away, to abstain, to say no, to stop the passions of the flesh, you better love them. Because you're going to get a fight. You're going to be judgmental. You're going to be a hater if you're telling people to stop doing things. You better love them. And I want to encourage you to get some relationships that have such a depth to them that you can love somebody so much that you might dare say to them, you need to stop doing that, beloved. What is it it that He says to abstain from? What is it that He says that we need to stop? And it's the passions of the flesh. The Bible teaches us that that you and I in our sins are going away from God. We're drifting literally literally further and further away from God. The Bible says that, that that our sinful fleshly desires are coming from a dead heart. A heart that does not, is unable, not capable of loving God. We have desires that are like that. We have wrong desires. We do. That's why you can't trust your heart. That's why you can't trust your desires at times. And so that's why he says that you need to abstain from those. Now, notice. He's telling sojourners and exiles, people who don't even fit here, to abstain from those. But that makes good sense. Think about it. You get around something that's not normal to you, it's not not common to you, and it starts to tempt you. Sitting here today... Nobody's thinking about getting into sexual lust or or pornography. But you let yourself be be alone in the stillness of the night, sitting on your computer, and a pop-up comes up, and things are a little bit different. See, being in that setting, you're like a sojourner in an exile, and it comes up. The idea to abstain from the passion of the flesh is very real then. Not as much here. This is what he's getting at. Many of you know you don't have any money, and sitting here today you're thinking, I I can't go and spend any money on those type of clothes at that type of store. But you go to the mall and you start walking through, and next thing you're like, well, I could probably just charge it. Next thing you know, you start thinking, I I need that. I want that. It's been a while, since I have really bought anything for myself. How often do we hear that? Next thing you know, the, the passions of the flesh start coming up, and Peter just says that we need to abstain from those. Say no. Listen, Christians, we need to realize that part of what the Bible tells us to do is to stop, no, abstain, quit, turn from lots of bad things. And this is not abstract bad things that are out there. These are bad things inside of us. Passionate things inside of us. He says, say no to them. I want to ask you, do you do that? Do you know that? Do you have that in your Christianity? That's a part of it. If spending too much money is a problem and temptation to you, you need to learn to say no. If talking bad about people, being more negative than you are positive, tearing down more than you're building up, is a real issue with you, then then you need to learn to say no to that. You need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You know, there are some people who very much so. You get them in a little small setting, and they're going to quickly turn toward gossip or slander or tearing down. You get out of church, you get by the car, you get out to eat sometime, you're hanging out at somebody's house, or you see somebody at work, and next thing you know, you're talking bad about something. If that's a passion or something that comes out of you, we need to learn to say no, abstain from that. If sexual sin and temptation and lust is a, is a problem to you, you have to learn to say no. I got a call this week from a guy that's in the ministry. He's been working with a, with a coach He says for about a year now, he's been spending time with his coach and building nowhere near Fairdale, don't get any ideas. Seriously, nowhere near Fairdale. And uh, he's been working with his coach for about a year and talking to him about Jesus and turning his life around and getting focused on him. And and he said, about a a couple weeks ago, the coach called him up and said, hey man, I think I'm ready to be a Christian like you. I've been thinking about it for a while. You know, we've been talking about it. I think I'm ready. The guy was thrilled. So he said, okay, I'm going to come meet with you and let's talk. He said, Well, you know, you know what you gotta do? You gotta turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. And this guy was excited. And the guy said, Yeah, but I wanted to ask you about one thing. I got a girl. And his words were, Ain't no way we can stop doing you know what. He said, Well, I know it sounds hard, but I want you to know that. God says you can. It can't get easier. The Bible says you got to stop. The Bible doesn't hold back or cut corners. The Bible says you have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now what I was able to encourage this, my friend with is as you start abstaining from the flesh, and everybody in here knows it, things get easier. The further and further you get away from your temptations, the less temptations there are. The more and more you you focus in on what you're supposed to be focused in, the less and less you're looking at that. Now, if you're staring at your temptation, then it's hard. My friend went on to say, well, look, man, I want you to be a Christian. You need to go home and think about this. This is how real it is. The Bible says you've got you to stop. You have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain means to quit. it. Look what it says next though. Which wage war against your soul? See, here's where we're at with sinfulness and temptation. We almost never, never think about our struggle with sin as killing us. We almost never think about our struggle with sin or the temptation to sin as losing a war. We think that it as not that bad or not that big of a deal. But Peter tells them it's a war against your soul. There are places in the Bible where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is addressing, dealing with lusts of the flesh, passions in our heart that wage war against our soul. And Jesus takes the extreme opposite stance of making it easy. Jesus says, oh, is your hand causing you to sin? Well, then cut it off. Then you'd be done sinning and you'd be right with God. He says, is your eye causing you to sin? You can't stop looking at things? Well, pluck it out then you're not sinning and you're right with God. Jesus's desire is not for you to go home today and cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. I ask that you would not do that. But His desire is to see that to come to God is to say, God, you're better than my soul being at war. You're better than me being somebody who says, I can't. Folks, the power of God is the power to change us. If you have a heart to want to abstain from something, find a church, call upon God, get a support system that will keep you focused on the power of God, knowing that the power of God can cause you to abstain. Is it hard? Yes. But God wants us to know that we can. He wants us to abstain. And it is very good for us as people to bring ourselves right to the crossroads and say, am I willing? Does this matter that much to me? Am I willing to fight for it? Or am I okay with losing a war? Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul." We need to hear more and more that our souls have a war going on. The Bible says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy us. Right now, he has strategies. And whatever the passions of the flesh are with you, whatever they are, and we all have them, know that it's not just the way you are, and it's not just the way life is, and it's not everybody's that way. It is the devil's attempts and the devil's plan and strategy to ruin your soul. To get your soul to lose the war. To get your soul to say, well, I just can't help it. This is better. I'm going to give in and to go to hell and not know God. That's what the devil wants. But the Bible also says that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, meaning that the power of God at work in us is stronger This is what the Bible says when it says that in God we are more than conquerors. So the Bible means when it says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This war in my soul is a hard one. If you're used to drinking six Diet Cokes a day and you know that it is bad and unhealthy for you, trying to cut down on those Diet Cokes is a war. We all know a lot of people that are that way. There are a lot of people these days who spend about $12 to $15 a day on energy drinks. They can't go without their monsters. They literally can't. There's wars going on in us that are the passions of our flesh. And Peter comes and he says, abstain from those. Not because it's bad and you shouldn't do it. That shouldn't be our parenting's biggest reason. That's certainly not God's biggest reason. It's because even little things, small things, things that you might explain as aren't that big of a deal, are war against our soul. You know, at the end of the day, the person who is falling into the, the, the slavery of sin is the one who has not come to God For forgiveness. And the one who has turned from their sins, even limping, even crawling, runs to Christ and says, God, help me, is the one who will be forgiven and will be in heaven. What God does in our hearts is give us a heart to abstain. John Stott says this, and I love this quote, listen. Listen. He says, sin and a child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. I'm not at all telling y'all this is easy or that you should be perfect. He says they may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. Everybody sins. Everybody gives in at times to the passions of their flesh. But we don't let the passions of our flesh be who we are. We don't let those define us. We fight a war. We go to war in order to abstain from these. We don't want to be killed by sin and death and the devil. We want to know God. I want to go back here to the idea of sojourners and exiles. Exiles. We understand the war when we understand that we're on God's side. When we understand the war and we understand that we're on God's side, then it makes sense to us that this is not our home and we're more like a sojourner, we're like one who's passing through, we're like an exile, this is not really where we're from. I was playing basketball several years ago and I was on a team where our shirt said Fairdale and The guy on our team lost his cool and was getting rough out there and was playing more rough than he should in basketball and we were playing outside of Fairdale and the guy, I don't remember what he did, pushed somebody or threw an elbow or something and he got a technical. I heard somebody in the crowd yell, that's Fairdale for you. Well, I don't know if it is or I don't know if it's not. And I don't care if it is or I don't care if it's not. The children of God, the children of God are not okay with having the identity of the world around them. The lost world around them. If that's Fairdale for you, then the people of God in Fairdale have a desire to say, no it's not. If the world is okay with saying these are the passions of my flesh and I'm just going to follow them. I'm just going to be okay with them. I'm just going to give in to them. The children of God are saying no. Because this world is not what I'm living for. And me is not what I'm living for. I want to abstain from those. Peter says, beloved, I urge you to do that. Don't give in to things. Don't lose the war to things that are killing you. Don't. And it's a message that we need to hear. The Bible says to abstain. Look back just a few verses to chapter 2, verse 1. Here, He says to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. We'd already talked about that. Peter in chapter 2 verse 1 is telling us that those type of desires, those type of reactions to what you're seeing in other people, and especially our speech to other people are are a problem. Put those away. Those do not reflect the new birth. Those do not reflect that God has given you a new heart. Those do not reflect that you have been uh, overwhelmed by the love and grace and forgiveness of God. So put those things away. Here, in chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 1, more about our, 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 our speech. Chapter 2, verse 11, more about the, the passions of our flesh. We've got to learn to abstain from them. For all of us who are Christians, we all have passions of the flesh. We must learn to abstain from those. Is it TV Do some of y'all have the TV on 24-7, day and night? Do some of y'all watch hours upon hours upon hours of TV and you find yourself saying, I I can't really live without it? Do you find yourselves in in conversations that you know are are unhealthy? You kind of wish you didn't even have that conversation? Do you find yourselves desiring more and more materialism? You've got to have more of these and more of that and another one of those. Do you find yourselves happy or unhappy based off of those things and circumstances? Hear the Word of God when it says, abstain from those. We can identify the passions of the flesh and we can abstain from those. And we are focused on that because we know it's waging war against our soul. Here's what that means, folks. There are a lot of things in life that are bad for us. There are things in life that are wrong. And Christians, hearing from the Word of God, get that. So we're living our lives not scared to death. We're not living our lives as, as, as those who aren't able to go strong or be passionate or to make a difference or, or, or be successful. Not at all. But well, we are living our lives knowing that, hey, that might be bad for me. Hey, that's probably going to kill me. Hey, that's going to turn me into somebody I don't want to be. We know that. So we're living like we're in a war. We're living like our souls are under attack. And those things which are killers, those things which are Destroyers of our lives and our families and our friendships, and certainly our witness to God. we want to abstain from. Maybe be strengthened, maybe proud in knowing. That there are some things you're resisting because you want to preser- preserve your soul. In verse 11, he says abstain from it. Then in verse 12, he kind of says it in the opposite direction. Look what he says, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles are people who are not believing in Christ. Gentiles are people who are not of the Jews. He says keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Live in such a way that those people see the way you live and they like it. That's what he means. That when people observe your living, not whether they know what you believe or not, not whether y'all have had a conversation about salvation or eternity, not whether they've heard what church you go to and what your personal beliefs are. They just have watched you. They see how you conduct yourselves on your 8 to 5 at work. They know how you are to your wife. Wow. What What a statement there is in your life. On the, to the world about the way you are to your wife. Or the way you are to your husband. Or the way you are to your kids. And Peter says, while you're abstaining from the, the war on your soul, conduct yourselves in a way that is honorable. In a way that is honorable. Honorable. Why? Well, just because you should or that's the right thing to do? Not at all. The Bible is not going to give you simple answers like that. And you know what? Years ago, when churches weren't strong on Bible and strong on doctrine and it kind of seemed that everybody went with the flow, that answer was good enough. But when the rubber meets the road and there's opposition out there and people start saying, well, you know what? I'm not sure if I believe. And when your children start saying, you know, I know it's good for you, but not for me. And when children start saying, I'm not going to go to church with my parents or my grandparents anymore. When when life gets real like that, then those answers don't work anymore. We need a big, robust, chest-pounding answer of why we should live in a way that is honoring to God. And He gives it to us so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Folks, the Bible teaches us that the glory of God is the reason why God created. The glory of God is why your heart is beating right now. The glory of God is why God gave you another day. God made us for His glory, and anything we're doing that comes short of His glory misses our purpose. To come to the very end of our lives on our deathbed or come to the very end of our lives and be clear in thought and to think I have not lived for the glory of God is to say I've wasted it. Why should we live in such a way among all the people that are around us that they might see and know the glory of God? The truth is is that everybody being a sinner does not behold the glory of God. The world doesn't. Everybody has sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And with that being the case, then God has made it that His people would be the ones that are winning people back over. Nobody naturally drifts or defaults into I want to live for the glory of God. Nobody at all. Well, the only way somebody who doesn't live for the glory of God gets to treasuring the glory of God is when somebody else who understands the glory of God influences them. Do you understand this? Seven billion people on earth Many do not know the glory of God. And the only way anybody will come to love and and live for the glory of God is if somebody else who loves and lives for the glory of God influences them. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. And so your passions of the flesh are not just about you, while they are just about you and your eternity. They are about the influence and the difference that it makes in the world as it speaks to people about God. He says, conduct yourselves in a way that is honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Interesting. Do you realize that if you live your life for God, that there will be people who don't like it? There will be people who speak evil of you. It happens. It just happens. I'm sure there are people... I don't hear about it a lot. But I'm sure there are people who think that Josh Green is a bad guy. I'm sure there are people who think that Josh Green is a problem. I'm sure there are people who think that First Baptist Church Fairdale is a problem. Does the Bible tell us that they should not be saying that? Or that we should try to get them to stop saying that? No. The Bible says people are going to say that. But the Bible does say that you should live in such a way that while they're saying that about you and they get to see you, they're like, they're not really that way. They're actually very honorable. They're actually fine people. They're actually those who are are making a difference that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Church, I'm, I'm strong on this point because the, the Bible wants us to know that for people to come to know God, they must understand Jesus, that He died on the cross for their sins, and that there is salvation in nobody else. Jesus is the only way. Yet, at, at times, that's not the only witness we have. Now, they must hear that. They must understand that. But in order for you to get into that conversation, at times, there must be an honorable conduct that welcomes that conversation. And we have forgotten that. There are too many churches these days and too many Christians who are hoping that they might have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, but they've never heard Peter say, abstain from those things, conduct yourselves in such an honorable way, so that the next thing you do, maybe down the road, maybe months, maybe years, you find yourselves in a conversation with somebody. And the reason why you're in that conversation about life and war against your soul and how their soul can be saved from war is because of the way our conduct was. Is because the way we have lived with good deeds. Peter says that while they're speaking evil against our honorable conduct, they see the way we're living and they glorify God. It's fascinating. Listen to this. I'm reading from Matthew Henry. Listen, it says, A clean, just, good conversation may not only stop their mouths, but may possibly be a means to bring them to glorify God and turn to you when they shall see you excel all others in good works. They now call you evildoers. Vindicate yourselves by your good works. This is the way to convince them. Somebody talks bad about you, and you desire for them to know God, the worst and last and wrong thing to do is to talk back bad about them. If somebody treats you wrong, does evil against you, and you want them to know God, the worst thing you can do is to do back wrong against them. There is no glory of God in that at all. Listen, and if you're here today thinking that that's the way you do it, or that's the way you were raised, or that's, that's what works, then you're revealing to yourself You're not a sojourner or exile in this world. God's way of living is not your way. The world's way of living is what you're defaulting to. We are sojourners or exiles, beloved. Let's abstain from living in a way that the world would do. I'll never forget that time that my wife and I were were out and about and we met somebody and he had a shirt on that said, Welcome to America, now speak English. And I remember thinking, wow. Well, he didn't know that my wife was not American. She's from Ecuador. and She speaks Spanish. For my wife's sake and her not being crushed, she knows English. It's a big blessing to be able to speak two languages. Very few people can. But she can, and so that helped her in that situation. If anybody in the world walked in this building right now, anybody in the world, wouldn't you want them to feel welcome? Yes. If anybody in the world comes to your house today, wouldn't you want them to feel, feel welcome? Hey, come on in, have a seat. Can I get you something to drink? I hope that your natural... Reaction. Just because somebody might be from a different place or a different skin or, God forbid, a different religion or a different language, your welcoming to them should not be, you get like me, welcome to America. How haughty can we be? How high and and arrogant might we be to treat people that way? I, I would bet that their reaction it would be deep down in their soul while they're crushed would be, believe me, I'm trying to learn English as fast as I can. It's the language that the whole world is using. I need English. That's partly why I'm here. Folks, if we're going to be sojourners and exiles because God is our God and God is our Father and Heaven's our home, we do not treat and interact and deal with people the way the world does. We have abstained from those types of reactions. I know a man in Fairdale. He's retired. He's a rough and tough guy. He's strong. And you talk to him for a little bit, you know that he is. He's got his opinions. And every time I talk to him, he's bringing up politics and what I saw on the news and all that. It's some some tough conversation. Well, guess what? I love this. Bosnians moved in down the street from him. Can you imagine They're Muslims. Guess what they did? They sent their daughters to His house with fresh baked cookies. Will that change your opinion or what? Folks, God wants us to know that while people may have their evil thoughts about us, while people may be opposed to what they think we are, it is our great desire not to fight back. It is our great desire to say, watch our conduct. See how God has changed us. Please experience the the difference that God makes in people's lives. Matthew Henry's quote goes on to say, There is a day of visitation coming wherein God may call them by His word and His grace to repentance, and then they will glorify God and applaud you for your excellent conversation. When the gospel shall come among them and take effect, a good conversation will encourage them in their conversion, but an evil one will obstruct it. We know that. Our lives are are certainly domino effects for why people are drawing closer to Christ or drawing further away from Christ. Who we are and what we're representing are either bringing people into a clearer picture of God or pushing them to a further picture or a darker picture of God. And that's a shame because God is a beautiful, awesome picture. He's the best thing for you. Oh, that God would not make us live in such a way. or God, Oh, that we would not live in such a way that we're making God look like something that He's not. I was talking to some young men, some college students this week. And I was asking about one of my buddies who's just a, really a stud guy, athlete, this awesome guy but loves Jesus. And one of the young men said to me, you know, that's why I started attending that thing, because he was there. And he said this to me. I was so impressed by him that I just wanted to go there and see him and meet him. Quote, I didn't know I was going to get saved. He was so drawn to this man and the way he lived his life and how he had a conviction for God. How he was a humble man that he wanted to be around him. And then, being around him, he came to know Jesus. This is what Peter is asking the church to be like. Conduct yourselves in such an honorable way among the people who don't like you that they start thinking, She's not what I thought she was. They're not really like that. Folks, what is people's perception these days of churches? That we're judgmental, that we're holier than thou, that you have to dress a certain way, that we're boring, that we're stuck up, that we're snobby, and we could go on and on to what people think. I hope that you're hearing what I'm saying, that the Word of God is telling us, live in such a way that we stop them in their tracks that we're so not like that. And if we are, we need to repent and change. I want to close with this story. I think it's fascinating. You remember in 2004 the giant earthquake that happened off the sea in the Atlantic, in the, sorry, in the Indian Ocean? It caused a tsunami of record scale, one of the worst ever. December 26th of 2004, a massive earthquake in the Indian Ocean spawned one of the most destructive tsunamis in recorded history. Listen, it swept away thousands of lives and left millions of people homeless. It's awful. You know who were unquestionably the first people there north american southern baptists to these completely muslim countries no one else i'm reading quote from an article no one else had helped this village since the tsunami A massive earthquake centered in the Indian Ocean west of the Indonesian island of Sumatra set in motion the tsunami that sent deadly waves across low-lying areas in South and Southeast Asia and as far away as Africa. The coastal areas most impacted by the tsunami are home to millions of lost souls who have little access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over the past few months... These people have seen the love of Christ as never before. Southern Baptist Christian workers uh, from here have provided emergency food and water. They've rebuilt homes. They've purchased fishing nets. They've helped reestablish businesses. And most importantly, they offer good news of of eternal hope in Jesus Christ. In India alone, uh, they're saying that about 1,900 Hindus and Muslims have asked to be saved and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior since the tsunami happened. As a result, 150 house churches have started, and some of those churches have already had to split to create more churches. Throughout tsunami-stricken areas in South Asia, Southern Baptists focused first on providing practical relief to survivors. They didn't go there saying, well, I know y'all are dying from this tsunami, but we've got one last message for y'all to hear. That's not what they went with. They went saying, look, we see humans that are hurting and suffering and in need, and we're here to bring need. Southern Baptists alone, listen to this, gave $17 million to tsunami relief to Muslims in Indonesia. $17 million dollars. Our primary guideline was to put people back to work by doing boat repairs, engine repairs, providing nets, purchasing boats, catamarans lost in the tsunami, and later vocational training for those without jobs. We also helped with physical needs by providing food, fans, sleeping mats, kerosene stoves, tarpaulins for shelter. We also helped organizations focusing on children affected by the tsunami, especially orphans and semi-orphans, children who lost one parent, by providing school supplies, shoes, clothes, and recreational equipment. It says, after the tsunami, we had all types of people saying they were coming to help us. And it says, quote, many did not live up to their promises. But when they came to us, they came with help. And they also gave us the good news. Folks, when we think we've just got the truth and I'm going to pound that into your head and you're wrong and I'm right, you're going to make no difference at all. Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't even tell us to go about it that way. The Bible tells us that heaven and hell hang in the balance. Eternity is awaiting. And the only way to get right with God is through Jesus on the cross. The Bible says very clearly that we should so live that people are convinced of that. Beloved, we should abstain from our fleshly desires and passions that are war against us. We should conduct ourselves in an honorable way so that while they're speaking evil about us, they see the good works and they glorify God. And then God will save them. Folks, may this be the desire. Our church's mission statement is... To proclaim Jesus while. We were very particular about the word while being in there. While loving and serving both God and people. I don't want people to hear about Jesus from me or from us unless they have first seen that we want to serve them. I don't want people to hear about Jesus from us unless they have first felt that we genuinely love them. And while we have loved them genuinely and served them faithfully or sacrificially, may they then have their ears and eyes opened up to, why are you this way? And we can tell them about the blood that flowed from Jesus on the cross that washed away our sins and brought us to Christ, brought us to God. May that be who we are. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for 1 Peter chapter 2. May we be sojourners and exiles. May we be a people who are living in such a way that people cannot see a consistency with their evil talk about us and what they see in us. We ask for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.